0: 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work.
1: Shopify.com work. Come, my friends, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and sitting well in order... Smite the sounding furrows. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars.
2: Why is London like Budapest? Answer: Because it is two cities divided by a river. Good morning. Let me introduce myself. My name is Dora Chance. Welcome to the wrong side of the tracks. Mm, that must make me Nora. <laughs> it must. Welcome to the Curiosity Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiosity specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode we take a well-known book out into the wild to see if the world of fiction matches up with the real world. Hello, my name is Tim Wright and I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fiction. Hello, my name's Lloyd Shepp, and I'm a digital producer and writer. And today we are on the south side of the river. We're on our doorstep, Of London. We? we are basically on our doorstep. Nice, easy one for us, this travel-wise, isn't we it? Very convenient. We can walk out of the door and walk down to the locations in this book. Yes. So let's say what the book is. It's Wise Children by Angela Carter. Yes. St- or Angie, as she's referred to quite a lot in the or, documentaries I've seen. Or Angie, yes, which I didn't know. No. But the story of Nora and Dora Chance. Yes. Twins. Twins. Born in the First World War. We're yep. going to have a, a discussion about when they're actually born later on. Dancers. Good time girls. Absolutely. Up for fun and Absolutely. a bit of a laugh. Yeah. And essentially illegitimate offspring of a theatrical family Yes, called the Hazards. Very good. From Melchior Hazard, who's their natural father. He's their biological father. know. And then his twin brother, Peregrine. Peregrine, it? Fat Hazard, yeah. Is their sort of... Well, I want to call him their sugar daddy, actually. Oh, He's quite a weird yeah. guy, yeah. isn't yeah. he? It's very weird. But anyway, so there's twins... It's set against the history, really, of the British theatre from essentially the end of the 19th century through to the 1990s. Yes, that's right. And the decline music. of musical, yep. the decline of theatre, yep. the rise of cinema, and ultimately the decline of cinema. Yeah, and the uh, rise of television. It covers a sweep of history of 100 years or more, in fact. The 20th century, at least, we could say. She has said, Angela Carter, that, of course, it's really a story about the failure of patriarchy during that time. As the sort of main engine of society, mm-hmm. she's happy to be called a feminist novelist, mm-hmm. but she's not very happy to be part of any feminist group or gang. In fact, she's, she's not, happy not to be, very happy to be a member of any gang. No, is she? she's incredibly uh, individual, yeah. creative just an amazing individual and personality. Yeah. I think we both fell for a little bit in the researching this podcast. Well, I, I'd like to meet her. I wouldn't like to live with her. I think she's got... Well, I know. I'd, I'd like to be her mate. I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, yeah. She's yeah. got a bit of a potty mouth on her, though. Bit of a potty mouth. That's all right. <laughs> Drops the F-bomb a lot on yeah. telly, I noticed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah she does, Yeah. Well, we're hardly clean-spoken. We are. We are. We're trying to avoid on this podcast. We don't have to tick the 18 or over exactly. box on Acast. Yeah, exactly. So we've got some great locations to go to, but they are all quite local to us, which has been great. Well, it, it's a great way to explore South London in a rather lovely way to try and find signs of the old show business activity that used to go on all over this part of the world. It was, I mean, it was really, really big. Mm-hmm. As we discovered about really? the number of theatres and music halls and stuff that used to be... On our doorstep, it must have been an amazing time. Incredible. I suppose the other thing to say about this book, actually, it's got loads and loads of allusions to Shakespeare. Yes, very influenced in by Shakespeare. Yep, yep. I think she said she's managed to get references to all but four of the Shakespeare plays. I said she rather funnily said she struggled with Titus Andronicus because she didn't know how to get somebody eating babies in a pie into the story. <laughs> But then she did have a celebrity chef. She could have worked that yeah, out. she could have worked think? something in. Anyway, there's a lo- if you like Shakespeare, you will really love this book. I think it's mm. really it's a love letter mm. to Shakespeare. It really is nothing else. Well, it's a love letter to Shakespeare Theatre in South London. Yeah, all three of things we all both like. So We're happy with that. Very yeah, happy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why don't we start where Shakespeare performance in London really took hold in, at the beginning of the twentieth century, and that would be the Old Vic Theatre.
1: Once more the breach! Dear friends, once more, or close the wall up with our English dead!
2: I must tell you that our father had become a truly great man of the theatre by this time. Now he was 40-ish, although he didn't look it with all that velvet glamour, and peaking at the apex, our greatest living Shakespearean luck had a lot to do with it, not to mention the Lady A's private fortune, financed his Shylock and his Richard III and his Macbeth. He'd always steered clear of Hamlet, though, and now he was too old. Perhaps he was nervous the critics might think he wasn't half the man his mother had been. <laughs> Here we are. So we, we are sitting in Millennium Green, a good South London scene. There's a jerk chicken stand being set up in the morning. You be able to hear some music coming from them. And we're looking at the side of a very large brick building with big arches. Lots of London red buses. Lots of London red buses going. It's a very London scene. It is, isn't it? We're outside the Old Vic. The Old Vic, darling. The Old Vic, darling. The Old Vic. Why have I brought you here? Yeah, why have you brought me here? I mean, obviously, I mean it's obviously a Shakespeare connection. There is a Shakespeare connection, but there's also a wise children connection. Is there? There is indeed. The... Theatrical production of Wise Children, right. the only theatrical production, I believe, was put on here in 2018. Wow, I completely missed that. Yes, you, you know, putting on your fake voice, because I told you this before we started recording. Uh, uh, draw the curtain back, Tim. <laughs> throw light onto the magic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not anyway, you'd never heard, heard of Emma actor. Rice, had you? Sorry? You'd never heard of Emma Rice. I'd never heard of Emma Rice, no. I don't really follow theatrical... Uh, people oh, you're going to have a lovely day today then <laughs> <laughs> I'm more of a movie guy <laughs> oh dear yeah you're the c- you, you. I'm the guy who ruined it you're for the everybody. guy who ruined it as we trundle our way through South London yeah. you're going to see it, all the great theatres got turned into cinemas they and then shut down and now they have been knocked down themselves because I just want to stay at home on my widescreen TV and watch football watch football <laughs> no I do like going to the theatre but um, I'm not uh, uh, cognoscenti uh, fair enough Nor, yeah. neither am I I just just looked at who Emma Royce was. Well, I have worked for the RSC, darling. Well, a couple of times. This is what I'm a bit worried about, is that you do have theatrical leanings. I do have theatrical leanings. I'm quite surprised you haven't come out in a red carpet robe today to do To To do do my Melchior. To do this podcast. (laughs) Greetings from Melchior Hazard. (laughs) I did see the best Shakespeare production I have ever seen at the Old Vic. (laughs) Oh, really? Which was The Tempest. We had a secret parking space for the Old Vic. We used to come here so often... That we worked out that there's a parking space on the other side of the theatre that you can park in after 5.30 And we worked out which seat you needed to be in because at the door they opened the side doors. So we literally got into the routine of being able to book a seat, walk out of the door, and into the car. This is so you. And be gone before this anyone so else is out. That the best thing about it. The best thing about it, yes. The best thing about the the best theatre. Thing. Of course, that's, yeah. that's you. So this is definitely the, a good starting point. But it's also, we should all say, it's kind of ground zero for South London Theatre, right? Yes. It's, well, between the closure of the Globe yes. <laughs> and those theatres and the opening of the National Theatre, this was Absolutely. the big theatre of South London. Yes, we're going to talk there about... There were lots of theatres in South London, but they were mostly musical. But this was the... Proper. This was the... the uh, I was going to say the daddy, but actually the mother of South London The mother, South because of, theatres. of course it was, it was Lillian Bayliss. Yes. Who had managed McCombs. it. Emma She's an extraordinary woman. Do you know she also started Sadler's Wells and yeah. she also started the company that became the English National Opera. It's extraordinary. Isn't it? And the Old Vic. Yeah. So without her, I yeah. mean... That and she was Emma Cons's niece? Yes, she was, yeah, yeah. And Emma Cons was the person who basically built the Old Vic? I think she refurbished it. Refurbished it. Refurbished yeah. it. But it was definitely Lillian Bayless who sort of revived it and she got John Gilgood in before the war to, to be the leading man. Uh, and actors. of course, one of the other great... One of the big central Shakespeare plays that's mentioned in this book is Midsummer Night's Dream. Midsummer Night's Dream. And there's a seminal production in put on here. 1937. 1937, is it? Yeah. Great. And in the same year, there was a seminal Hollywood production. Ah, because of they go to Night's Hollywood Dream. in the book, don't they? It was, it was Max Reinhardt, was the director of the film. I remember this because I wrote about it at university. Famously, the poster said Midsummer Night's Dream written by Max Reinhardt with additional dialogue by William Shakespeare. Nice. And there's a joke about that in the book. Yeah. she, she, she talks So about she's thinking book. of that film then. She's thinking of that film and it's Merle Oberon. But Midsummer Night's Dream is, is definitely a production that was around that time and culturally significant because yeah. it's a film and a big play. Yeah, yeah. But big Larry film. wasn't in Midsummer Night's Dream. No, Vivian Lee was though. Vivian Lee was. Vivian Lee was Titania. I would have liked to have seen that. Yeah. Merle Oberon or Vivian Lee, for you? Uh, Titania. Merle Oberon is more interesting I would say. Well, there's so many fantastic women that are cropping up as we do the research for this book, it's I have to say. Really good. The other one I discovered is that Lillian Bayliss had a very good friend called Beatrice Gordon Holmes. OK. And in fact, she would like to be referred to as Gordon Holmes. She was the first woman to be a really successful stockbroker in the city. Really? Yeah. Well. Became filthy rich in the city. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And she used to be best mates with Lillian Bates and used to give Lillian Bayes quite a lot of money for her projects, for her arts projects. Wow. And including the Morley School, of course, started there as well. Yeah, Lillian Bayless School is a very famous secondary school in Kennington. Yeah, so if you want a treat, look up Beatrice Gordon Holmes' Wikipedia. Her yep. whole life is extraordinary.
1: I've been writing a great deal about women who are in, quote, show business, unquote. Nora and Dora and in Wise Children, are emphatically not actresses, they're, they're hoofers.
2: And they're useful people. (laughs) sounds beastly to talk about my characters in this way. They're useful people because, of course, their living, their whole livelihood, is based on the public presentation of certain kinds of aspects of sexuality, certain kinds of aspects
1: of femininity, which they're quite conscious about. Being a showgirl is, is, is a very simple metaphor simply for being a woman, for being aware of your femininity, being aware of yourself as a woman. And having to use it to negotiate with the world.
2: So, Angela Carter, what do we know about her life? Angie! I know, I was really, really hoping you weren't going to start singing this. Angie! That. Okay, that's really, that's really not great. She uh, grew up in Ballham. Did she? Apparently. I didn't, go, I didn't pick that up. Yes, and she went to Streatham and Clapham High School. She did go to Streatham and Clapham High School, she did. Yeah, so she's a proper South Londoner. She was quite fat. Yes, I read that. They yeah. called her Tubbs. Her mother called her tubs. Well, her mother is an extraordinary person, yeah. I feel. Yeah. Very possessive. Very possessive. So much so that even until her teens, she wouldn't let Angela go to the toilet on her own. She had to leave the door open, didn't she? Yeah. She was so anxious about ever losing her, she wouldn't, didn't want her out of her sight. Yeah, treated her like a doll, Was how it was described. Quite extraordinary. So no wonder that then Angela became quite rebellious. Well, she decided, the, w- the way the sister-in-law tells it, she decided to get thin. So she got thin. Yeah. And then she got, and then she married someone at 20. Paul? Somebody? Paul. He was a bit of a beatnik. He was a folk-loving beatnik. Oh, yes. As. Paul Carter, hence the name Angela Carter. Ah, right. Okay. Uh, they moved to Bristol, Clifton. He became a chemistry lecturer and she just became a housewife and went slowly bonkers basically being a housewife. Hated yeah. it. Really hated it. Yeah, yeah. And she just started writing. Yeah. Uh, she did English Lit at Bristol University. I did spot in the journals on the documentary, she'd wrote, Catherine Mansfield is crap. Which is, yeah, she was, she started, she All had right. fairly forthright in her views. Did anyone ask her about Catherine Mansfield when she said that? <laughs> she just said it Anyway. She wrote five novels between 1965 and 1969. Well... They, a novel a year. Yeah, but I did also see in that document, somebody said, oh, Angela was always very productive when she was very unhappy. Yes. And that once she became happy later in life... She, she stopped didn't, writing. Yeah, she didn't write yeah, so yeah. much. She went to Japan for two Well, years. she won an award, didn't she? She won the Somerset Maugham Award for several perceptions... And that was £500, quite a lot of money in 1969. Yeah, yeah. This is amazing, this story. I think this is her awakening moment, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. She left Paul behind in Bristol yeah. and went, I'm going to Japan. Yeah. And but she was Japan. only meant to go for a month. She stayed for two years. Yes. Yeah. And two took years. up with some Got Japanese, with a Japanese man. writer. Yeah. Got a job as a hostess. Came back to Britain in 1972. She stayed very obscure. She couldn't really get noticed. She she wrote freelance journalism for the Radio Times and the New Statesman just to okay. kind of keep the wolf from the door. Really. The wolf from the door. Not nicely bad. done. I see, see where I you're there. going with that. See what I did there. Because the most famous thing about her, I think, that people will associate with her is probably The Bloody Chamber. The Bloody Chamber, which came out in 79, right? Yeah, which is a series of updated folk tales, aren't they? I mean, the most famous one is Company of Wolves, which was turned into a film, which is a retelling of Little Red Riding Hood. As a result of these sort of fantasy stories, she was dubbed to be one of the magical realists, which she, she really hated that. Term. Term there, isn't she? But so then that's another there. club she didn't want to join, basically. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? She was so forthright, you know, she got started being appearing on television and becoming a bit of a public figure she didn't really have an off switch or a filter she just told you exactly what to do. the thing i wrote that's why i was saying we want to live with her because i think every like every day there'd be a slightly cutting remark <laughs> you have to well, live with I just, there was an interview with her and she's talking they were talking about you know different or there were clips of these various book programs she she described the bloomsbury set as tinkling overprivileged freaks uh-huh. which i just think is brilliant jeanette winston talks about her a lot Margaret Atwood talks about her a lot. You know Anne Enright. She taught Anne Enright at the UEA. But Nights at the Circus came out in the early eighties. Yep. Wasn't even nominated for the Booker. Uh, Hotel Hotel, du Lac. Hotel du Lac won. Yeah. Jeanette Winterson was really rude about Hotel du Lac, which I think I really like Hotel du Lac, and I like to bring it. But Mm. she's she's in that milieu and Angela Carter obviously wasn't. She wasn't shortlisted. And then yet again for Wise Children, which came out in
1: nineteen
2: ninety one. Yeah. She wasn't even shortlisted for that. No. And I don't think any women were. There were no women shortlisted in good, 1991. It? It's not good, is it? But while all this is going on, well, before Wise Children comes out, there's quite a lovely coda to this, really, which is that she meets this guy who came around to fix her sink called Mark. Was it Mark? <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's a plumber. Yeah. Comes around to fix her pipes, missus. Uh, and he's, he's much, much younger than her. I think he's like 20 years younger than her. Yeah. And she fell pregnant by him you know, yeah amazing in he her 40s son, Alex, right yeah. in her 40s and um, was devoted to him apparently be, yeah. so she wrote Nights at the Circus and it was seven years before Wise Children came out because she was happy she was happy and then there came the hammer blow that she had lung cancer more from smoking. smoking I wrote down she was on the phone <laughs> to somebody this is I just think defines her so brilliantly she's on the phone to somebody she goes hang on she goes I've got to go and answer the door she goes downstairs and comes back she goes it's okay it was a man without a scythe anyway they married two weeks after she wrote her will yeah, And then she died on the 16th of February, 1992. Only 51. Wow. And an eight-year-old child as well. Yeah. So so it's ex- extraordinary to me that this book is so joyful and full of life. I know. And she's writing it when she knows her days are numbered. You have to think of that while you're reading it, I think. It's hard not to. how extraordinary it is. Because yeah. it, it, it is so vivid. Yeah. And the Dora and Nora are so... Everything's everything might be terrible, but we can always dance. You know, that's it's, right. It's, 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 Sing and dance, yeah. yeah that's what yeah. they love doing: is singing yeah. and dancing, and also quite a lot of romping, quite a lot of shagging. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very yeah. joyful book, and it has a sort of happy ending. It does as well. If well you, it's, if you pardon uh... the expression. <laughs> Dora and Nora, two girls pounding the boards. At Christmas, we did a panto. One year, we did Jack and the Beanstalk at Kennington. Would you believe a live theatre in Kennington once upon a time? Alive and kicking. Beans in green tights. Our speciality number was Mexican jumping beans in red tights. Two pounds a week each. It went a long way in those days. Would you believe a live theatre in Kennington, Tim? Uh, well you wouldn't believe you it now to one, you? Huh? you bought me to one haven't uh, you you bought me to one well it's a dead theatre it's now a block it's of flats it's a demolished theatre actually you know they still do theatre in the White Bear opposite they do Yeah. Uh, upstairs and have done for many many years Yeah. so there is still some theatre in Kennington it's a theatrical tradition to Kennington but it's nothing like the mahoosive Kennington Theatre that, it that cool. used to be there with that brown block of flats just on the north end of Kennington so Park it's on the corner of Kennington Park going towards um, Elephant and Castle Elephant and Castle, Castle to, yeah that on, corner of yeah. Kennington Park It's an enormous place do you know it was opened by Sir Henry Irving right so proper theatre royalty well he was uh, he, Bram Stoker's uh, employer that's right so Bram Stoker was probably there at the opening oh yes he probably might well yeah, have been yeah, so. yeah. And I think Sir Henry Irving's a bit of a melchior hazard. We found recordings of Sir Henry Irving, didn't we? Yes. um, When we were doing our Dracula podcast, and he was very sonorous. 1898 it opened. The walls were of Italian marble. Blimey. You entered from Kennington Road by a few broad steps, running the entire length of the 50-foot-wide colonnade into a vestibule and thence to the grand crush room. The decoration was free Renaissance style. It was really glamorous. And they did a lot of panto. I'm looking at this on arthurloyd.co.uk oh we've used so. Arthur Lloyd before yeah it's very good isn't yeah, it yeah yeah full of show business stuff so they did a panto every year so it's quite right that there would have been pantos here but they would have only just got in time right because it was closed after production of Dick Whittington in 1921 and reconstructed in order to stage cine variety with a back projection screen of 18 foot by 14 foot. So they can't have been in panto here, can they? I think they still did panto. So it was dual purpose for a while. Dual purpose for a while, but only until 1934. Well, that's okay. So they're just, they're they're okay. They're at the tail end of the... They're uh, at the arse end of it though, aren't they? It's amazing though that they built that massive theatre, and less than four decades after it opened... It's gone. Did it get bombed in the war then? Or did they knock it down? It was taken over by the Oscar Deutsch Odeon Theatre Circuit who wanted to demolish the building and build a new Odeon cinema. This never transpired, but the building sat unused from 1934 until it was damaged by bombs in 1943 and it was compulsory purchased in 1949, knocked down. So that's that's when those flats were there. It was never made into a purposeful cinema then? No, they never bothered. They were going to, but then they just never got around to it. They obviously didn't get permission to demolish it and build an Odeon. So they just left it there. So Italian marble steps and surroundings, they just wanted to demolish it. Yeah. Different times. There's pictures of it on the site, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Look, it's big. Wowza. It's really big, right? Looks like something on Piccadilly. Yeah. I feel a bit sad that it's not here. Yeah. It would be quite... It would be be fairly amazing if there was a... A working theatre here now, wouldn't it? It would be grand old theatre. It was. Amazing so it's a combination place. of Oscar Deutsch, the Nazis, yeah. and local planning. Well, and, and say people like you, and who to watch tele- watch football on television. I like the way you're blaming me for the de- I'm demolition you to, of the, for uh, the death of uh, South London theatre. The Death of South London theatre. It's yeah. people like me. It's people like you, mate. You wouldn't be going to musical, mate, if it you're was. You're the on. same kind of person who worries about you the death of pubs without going to you the the pubs. You wouldn't be going oh, you know, you to musical go to if it was on now you'd be saying it's all a bit white and racist. <laughs> oh, we're going to get to that. Yeah. Once we get down to Brixton. Yeah. I've got some stories to I'm tell sure about I'm sure you that. have. I'm <laughs> sure you have. One of them involves Benny Hill. <laughs>
1: When my father was in his early 80s, well, in his mid-70s to early 80s, he was very sick and he was pretty much bedridden and he was blind. And I was a small boy. He was 65 when I was born. I was a small boy and I would sit beside his bed as his audience and he would talk about the 30 years he and his first wife and my mother, his second wife, had uh, actually spent in music hall. And lots of people, when he was very sick, used to begin to visit him and they were people who had appeared on stage with him 40, 50 years earlier. And they sat around the bed and they sang the old songs. They argued about who had the greatest songs. Was it Flurry Ford? Was it Champion? Who who was it? Was, uh, was Mari Lloyd the best? Who was the funniest? Dan Leno or Little Titch? And they had all these wonderful conversations. And they relived their past. And they just came alive beside that bed. Prosperity hadn't touched the lives of many of them. And they certainly had very little when they called to see my father. But you could tell an inner glow reappeared when they remembered the moments in their life that had meant most to them, which was when they were performing on stage so many years earlier. And I, and I absorbed all that.
2: This is a book that came out in 1991. Yes, indeed. It's quite an odd book to come out at that time. It's quite time. a blokey year, I would say. Quite a blokey year. Yeah. Oh, do you think so? Well, there's a lot of war going on. Oh, well, that's true. It's the Iraq War, first Iraq War. The Gulf War, true. And yeah. um, the Soviet Union was falling apart. Not a great time to be a socialist, Angie, I'd say. No. Neil Kinnock's Labour leader, John Major's Prime Minister. Yeah, who's going to win that fight? Oh, no. John Major. It, turns out John Major. <laughs> turns out John Major. Well, it's, the year started off quite blokally. Why? Uh, the first number one of the year was Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter by Iron Maiden.
1: Oh, well, Big Year Which for...
2: Which th- well, I thought was quite a good uh, opening line for 1991. <laughs> big Year for Metal. You yeah. see, because I, I, I was looking up the music and I, I thought, oh, I know what I was listening to. I was listening to Nevermind. Yes. I was listening to Out of Time by R.E.M. Yes. And I was listening to Screamer Delica by Primal Scream. Yeah, yeah. Possibly stuff. Blue Lines by Massive Attack. Yeah. A- and also I was listening to A Tribe Called Quest as my only way into... Good year, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. It's a good but, year. Yeah, but metal-wise, yeah. apparently... It's going to be American metal, though, isn't it? Is it Metallica and all well, that? Well, Metallica was, was the biggest selling record of the year. Into or the Sandman. Or? right? And Guns N' Roses were massive that year. Oh, was that their big year? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And Def Leppard as well had a big album out. I thought you'd know all this. <laughs> I don't know why I have I to think say I it. I think I probably stopped listening to, uh, to metal in 1991. Because I've ex- as I've explained in earlier podcasts, I realised some years before that that it wasn't getting me any girls. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not an appropriate thing to say on a podcast about Angela Carter, but, you know, needs must as the devil drives. I think Which Angie, is a, a good heavy metal album. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I think Angela Carter, I her kind she of was... feminism is she, she feels that men are in crisis as much as women, I think. So your troubles regarding women, <laughs> yeah. she'd, she'd probably give a hearing little too. <laughs> I don't think she'd listen to heavy metal, though. Also, I'm not sure Def Leppard really counts as heavy metal. Freddie Mercury died. We did. And Ed Sheeran was born. Oh, well, okay. There we are. I looked down the berths, and there were Ed Sheeran, two little mixes, and one One Direction. All born in that year. Oh, OK. There's some show business deaths that are relevant to the book, like Peggy Ashcroft, a great Shakespearean actress, died yep. that year. Yep. Obviously, Robert Maxwell fell off a boat. He did, 5th of November. Yeah. Margot Fontaine, the great ballerina, mm. died. She's part of sort of show business royalty throughout the sort of 50s, 60s, yeah. 70s, don't you Well, think? Graham Greene died. Well, I had a good one here. And I? Angus Wilson, the same year. Yeah, so death of the English novel. Hooray! <laughs> the guitarist <laughs> of Def Leppard died in 1991. So are Graham Greene and David Lean. Oh. Both died. I thought Roy Keane might be nervous. <laughs> um, Serge Gainsbourg, je t'aime. Oh, he died. Okay. John Arlott died in uh, 1991. <laughs> That's not a bad John Arlott. John well Arlott, done. Yeah. Well done. Uh, my, better than he's, my he's Serge Gainsbourg. He's walked off the wicket with his bat held high and the uh, crowd are giving him a round of applause. Well played, sir. Well played. To bring us back to the subject matter, <laughs> Dallas and Bergerac both finished that year. Oh, which were you more depressed to see go? bergerac yeah i would agree talking about unreconstructed men one of the most memorable things i remember from that year is oliver reed on after dark oh god was that the one he was drunk on yes and was trying to talk about feminism to to feminists while pissed he was superbly offensive (laughs) it's on youtube a recommended watch it's just (laughs) ridiculous really really good it's very bad helen mirren appeared in prime suspect oh yeah jane Tennyson. yeah so there's some good powerful women around I'd say Helen Mirren taking the lead in Prime Suspect was good. Helen Sharman went into space. Sarah br- Remington was announced as the first female director of MI5. Yes, and Edith Cresson was the first women prime minister of France. Yes. So she often says that all her books are political. And I'm thinking, if this book comes out in 91, yeah. do you, it's a story about two ageing showgirls mm. And their life history, a sort of memoir, a comic memoir of their life. What's that got to do with anything we've just talked about in 91? Uh, I don't know, but I think you do. I think you're working up no, to it. No, I'm not working up to it. Oh, I, I'm that... actually, for oh once, I was disappointed. For once. I <laughs> I thought you were going to say something about Margaret Thatcher and Edith Cresson. Well, there is a connection I'm thinking of, which is Betty Boothroyd. Okay. Became Speaker of the House, yeah, but not till ninety two rather yeah. than ninety four. She was uh, yeah, she had a. She was in the Tiller round. Girls, which the I will t- talk t- t- about later. Yeah, she did. We have yeah. got to talk about dancing girls at some point. Well, I th- I left the <clears throat> dancing girls to you because I know you'd go deep. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that is curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. If you want to hear part two of our Wise Children adventure, you can get it right now. It's on the server waiting for you if you subscribe to our Patreon account. Yes, just go to Patreon and search for Curiously Specific and you will find us there. And for your £2, you will get not only ad-free episodes, but you'll also get maps. I'm drawing this one. You are. So it won't be that bad. No, it won't be that bad. It's quite easy, though. The South London one. It's quite easy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't don't start telling me how easy maps are to do. Well, yeah. You haven't even done your last one. We offer photographs of our field trips and some video footage as well, so you get a real get a sense of place. And so occasionally we do long winded posts about some of the stuff we talk about in the podcast when we need to go into more detail, <laughs> as I did about churches. <laughs> in east anglia yeah you did go quite deep into churches yeah and then we cut it from the podcast because it was boring <laughs> it wasn't boring it was just quite hard to follow and then for five pounds a month you can join us on a discord server to discuss things like discuss churches, churches, in, east <laughs> <Anglia>. churches <laughs> in east anglia well or other things you're really selling this to back to the podcast
0: Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at Burrow.com ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
2: Brixton, before the lights went out over Europe, hub of a wheel of theatres, music halls, empires, royalties, what have you. You could tram it all over from Brixton. The streets of tall, narrow houses were stuffed to the brim with stand-up comics, adagio dancers, soubrettes, conjurers, fiddlers, specialty acts with dogs, doves, goats, you name it. (laughs) Nice. Nothing's changed lovely Brixton. everything's changed everything's changed we're sitting at the the hub of Brixton uh, Windrush Square yep obviously Windrush wasn't even a, a gleam in anyone's eye when the period she's talking about there in the 1930s yeah we're sat outside the Ritzy opposite there's the Electric the Electric Brixton which, which is was a very, a, actually a very fine music venue you've just shown me the location of the Empress Theatre well, that's a so stunning. I didn't know anything about. Yes. Well, it's a really... Which is if you come out of Brixton so Tube Station... Amazing, right? And turn left. Yeah. And start walking up towards... Well, there's Stretton. a little road called Brighton Terrace that takes you through to Trinity yeah. Gardens. Yeah, it's, it's, it's off... It's not, it wasn't on the main road, which I found surprising. It no. Off the main road. It's an amazing place. It's a huge place. Again, it opened 1898, exactly the same time as the Kennington Theatre. Right. So, so that the, was the, the, the theatre boom was on. Interesting enough, the opening night included Kate Carney... Now Kate Carney was a very well-known singing artiste, and also she was she used to work on the markets as well, selling potatoes on Brixton Market, she, and, and well around about. I think she had a barrow. Oh. Wow! But she also had a house on Brixton Hill. Wow! And and she married a theatre promoter, so, and she had took in lodgers. So there's a she house. She be grandma. Well, Kate Carney. She's, yeah. She's a good candidate. She's so a good candidate. There she is at this amazing theatre, uh, the Empress which actually carried on in various guises. It was taken over in 1930. I'm finding this in the rather fabulous layersoflondon.org oh, what a website great site that is. It had a 1500 capacity. It was huge. Yeah. And then in 1930 it was taken over by the Variety Theatre Consolidated and it was remodelled and it became the Granada Cinema in 1957. And then it was a bingo hall in the 1970s and the Empress ended its life as a furniture warehouse and it was demolished in 1992. Oh, okay. What, two years after the book is set you mean? <laughs> well, we'll discuss that. Yeah. But while she was writing the book it was being knocked it down. It was a furniture to. warehouse. On the rather lovely cinematreasures.org dot right. org about old cinemas. the reason the cinema is interesting. She talks about going to the local flea pit. doesn't That's she? right. So we, that might help us triangulate where they where, live. Uh, We're looking for Forty Nine Bard Road, 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 aren't we? Yeah. So what would have been the nearest cinema? Yeah. But the thing is, there's loads of them around here. There's so many. Yeah. Because there's one halfway up Brixton Hill that's now a camping shop or something like that. Or used to be. Right. Was that oh, the Scala? The Scala. You can still see it used to be a cinema. It's tiny. The Electric, I think, is the, my favourite. The Electric's very good, isn't it, as a location was? Yeah. That, that, would, that was an old cinema. Because Acre Lane, I mean, Acre Lane runs up the back of the Electric Cinema, really, doesn't yeah. it? The Electric Brixton. To, just to go back to the wonderful Empress Theatre, the last show ever played there as a theatre in 1955 was headlined by... Max Miller, Max Miller. Now look in the book. There's a character called Gorgeous George, who's yeah, a music hall artist, artist Brighton Pier, and she? he has quite filthy jokes. He's got a tattoo of the world. Yeah, I don't think Max Miller had tattoos, but no. he was well known for his pretty filthy act. Yeah, and they first see him in Brighton. Yeah, and Max Miller is from Brighton. There's a statue to Max Miller in Brighton. Very good. So he's very much a Brighton man. But then he's up here playing regularly at that at that theatre. Um, at the Empress. Yeah, yeah. So the Empress was musical. It says that he variety. played the last music there, and then it said the last pantomime there yeah. was uh, Aladdin starring Alma Cogan. <laughs> wow. And I had another little story, which was that uh, Benny Hill got broke into show business in that theatre. Really? Yeah. He, well, he didn't perform there. Apparently, I don't know where he's from, but he came to London deciding that he wanted to work in the theatre. Yeah. And he, for some reason, he ended up knocking on the door of the manager there. Well, this saying, would have been ground zero, wouldn't it? I, sp- I mean, this y- and the West End. I suppose thought. so. You come here, this is showbiz land, right? Well, the West End would have been posh stuff, and then re- you'd come around here if you wanted to do yeah. you know, musical stuff. Yeah, so he knocked on the door, said, have you got any job? I'll do anything, I just want to get into show business. Yeah. Manager said, no, I haven't got anything, but tomorrow if you go up to the uh, Leicester Square or whatever, you can ask for my mate, and he might have a job for you. And uh, Did you run up in a high-speed... Uh, he didn't do you know what he did weirdly he went south from here because he claims that he slept the night on Streatham Common because he didn't have any money which is nowhere near here <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he went all the way down to Stretton Common was he, was he chasing a bunch of lovelies in underwear <laughs> then, but the next day he went up, the, up up to town and he got a job Well. Wow. in show business so Brixton turned its back on him so he went west yeah well, but I the spirit of them is alive and strong in common. You the right idea, don't you? Ah. <laughs> I wanted to know in this book because we're called the curiously specific book club is how much of this stuff is angela carter's making up and how much of it is based on real characters from show business and yeah. the music hall what's the gap between fact and inspiration as it were yeah well the, so the family are called the hazards yeah and they go all the way back to the 19th century yes the patriarch is randolph hazard Yes, he is. And his wife, who make their name Touring America. That's right. Now, I think there are a couple of models for this, okay? The first thing is, you know about the Terry family? No. Uh, Well, I, I know Ellen Terry. I've heard of Ellen Terry. Well, Ellen Terry's parents were Benjamin and Sarah Terry, who were both actors. Okay. Ellen Terry obviously achieved huge success initially with Henry Irving. who ah, who opened the Kennington Theatre. Who went to the Kennington Theatre. The so I'll come on to Henry Irving. They basically established a, a dynasty that goes down four generations of oh, actors. On. Their great nephew was John Gielgud. Oh, he's part of the Terry? He's part of the Terry dynasty. So look, you know, there's a family tree. So is he... It looks like the family tree that you see on a lot of websites it... describing wise children. <laughs> He wouldn't have got so far if he was called Terry, though, would he? What Terry? Terry so Gilgood. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there's a, there's a model there for it. Yeah. Um, especially with Gilgood as this kind of sh- Shakespearean actor, sonorous. Yes. Yeah, so you know. the biological father of Nora and Dora. Yeah. Melchior. It's Melchior Hazard, who has made his name through kind of performances of Shakespeare. Yes. His hundredth birthday party in 1991. He's wearing a big red robe. 1990. 1990, 1990, 1992, actually, if you want to get it right. So I think he's kept his dad's cardboard crown from a performance of King Lear, and it's his most treasured possession. But the thing I think is interesting about that is Henry Irving. Now, Henry Irving made his name in America through touring with Ellen Terry. They toured America six times from 1890 to 1901 with Bram Stoker. Who is his manager. Oh, of course. Dracula came out while they were touring in America. Now, the thing, I find a really excellent piece about Shakespeare and the Wild West. Because in the book, they're touring all these kind of strange frontier towns, aren't they? And the, when they're successful, the town changes its name to Hazard. Changes to Hazard, yeah. Which, is, of course, then leads to the Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> I'd not made that connection. <laughs> That's very good. Anyway, I found a great piece by Andrew Dixon on The Guardian called West Side Story, How Shakespeare Stormed America's Frontier. Oh. basically he says that, that, that Shakespeare was huge it was huge in American theatre bigger than it was in, in, in London actually because they, everyone knew Shakespeare it was like playing jazz they all knew the rhythms and all this kind of stuff what's striking, so this is what he says what's striking is how egalitarian all this seems to be whereas on the east coast and back in Britain Shakespeare was increasingly regarded as the purview of the snobbish middle classes in the west there seemed to be little sense that it was anything other than popular entertainment Theatre, both professional and amateur, became an important part of pioneer life. Shakespeare came along with the singers and magicians and carnival hucksters who toured even the most distant corners of the frontier. The seven strong Chapman acting family fitted out an entertainment boat at Pittsburgh in 1831 and sailed it up and down the Ohio River, valiantly bringing Hamlet and Othello to settlers' camps and riverside settlements. Wow. So that's 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 what the parents knew. So I think there's a model there as well. So something about Henry Irving, Ellen Terry, yeah. the Terry dynasty, yeah. and this American stuff, I think is all informing what she's doing with her oh, family. Very nice, very nice. I was looking at other dynasties and, and was thinking about the Redgraves. Yes. I only know about Michael Redgrave, who was a very great screen actor and, and Shakespearean actor. Very a, good. Around the, and in the 1920s 30s. Yeah. So he would be a model for Melchior. But going back further, I looked in their family tree because obviously then they have she, he has Three children. Yeah. And they all go into Corin a- acting. Vanessa. Lynn Redgrave. Yeah. And Lynn Redgrave actually then did a one person show after he died called something like Searching for My Father Through Shakespeare or something. It's all about her relationship with Shakespeare and her relationship with I would her say dad. that Lynn Redgrave is the greatest of the Redgraves. I love her and everything I say her. In. Oh, that's interesting. I think she's fantastic. I'm I like Vanessa. Yeah. I like them all actually. They're all they're all good. Yeah. Very left wing. Very, very socialist. Yeah, yeah, very left-wing. So there's, there's, I think there's a whiff of them. And then obviously they're Michael Redgrave's father. My goodness. If you want a dodgy, philandering, touring actor, meet George Ellsworthy, Roy Redgrave. Okay. Blimey. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's, have you ever read about him? No. So he was born in Lambeth in Kennington. Yeah. So he's a South London boy. Yeah. He decided to call himself Roy because he believed he was descended from Rob Roy, or that's what he told people. So his first wife was an actress, Ellen Maud Pratt, and they were married in 1894, so the yeah, time oh, is quite good. good. But then he also fell in love with another actress called Esther Mary Cook Yeah, and ran off with her. There's quite a feature in these old theatrical actors yeah. in that they do seem to go through about three or four wives. Yes, exactly, which is what goes on in the book. Yeah, exactly. He ran off to South Africa with one of these women I get confused about his life (laughs) I have to say maybe he was confused as well honestly and then he goes off to Australia and he meets another woman there and he he turns into a bigamist Hmm. at that point he's married twice I just think turns into a bigamist is rather a turn, rather odd turn of phrase. <laughs> well, you aren't a bigamist until you are. <laughs> oh, my god, oh my god! You're not a potential bigamist. <laughs> I seem to be a bigamist. We're, <laughs> we're all potential bigamists, bigamist, are we? Is that Kafka? All, I've woken up. You're either a not a bigamist or you are a bigamist. <laughs> so he was leaving children all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't until he got back to Britain in 1907 that he met Daisy Bertha Mary Scudamore who was another actress, and he got married to her and had Michael Redgrave. Oh, my God. These stories, show business stories that arise out of reading this book, where you go back and find different characters, there's so many of them. (laughs) We both went quite, we both probably went too deep. Yes, we did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I noticed that there was one point their grandmother was called Estelle or something like that. And she goes to Australia and they like her so much they name an ice cream after her. And she's called Estelle Ice Cream or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's obviously a re- reference to Nellie Melba. Yes. Who was, well, did you know that Nellie Melba, who's a great Australian opera singer? <laughs> Uh, we are doing it again. <laughs> the minute we start talking, there's another. There's, there's another, another anecdote. There's yeah. another story. All right, I won't tell that one. I'm going to save it up for the second half. <laughs> we're going to save it up for the second half. But well, there's so much good stuff that we're going to do this bit in two bits. That's right. Yeah. That's what we'll do. So we'll uh, so save Nanny Melba. Shall I shut up now?
1: Has anybody here seen Florry? M-O-R-D-E Has anybody seen Florry? <laughs> and you it's all her on the As blurry, blurry from the Isle of Man
2: What would have become of us if Grandma hadn't left us this house? 49, Bard Road, Brixton, London, South West 2. Bless this house. If it wasn't for this house, Nora and I would be on the streets by now, hauling our worldlies up and down in plastic bags, sucking on the bottle for comfort like babes unweaned, bursting into songs of joy when finally admitted to the night shelter and therefore chucked out again immediately for disturbing the peace, to gasp and freeze and finally snuff it, disregarded on the street and blow away like rags. That's a thought for a girl's 75th birthday what? It's good isn't it 49 Barred Road Yeah So that was obviously a Red rag to a bull for me And you I, I assume That she's put a particular address down With a postcode And no it's, less. A, it's the central location of the whole book <laughs> Well first of all there's no Barred Road There is a Shakespeare Road But it says SE24 not SW2 Is it right? Yeah But it's a very long road Doesn't it cross no. two postcodes? No, it starts in SD24 and... Does it? Oh, it might end in SW2, actually. I think it might On end the far in SW2. But, but the far end's a long way from Brixton. I think you need to extend your county borders knowledge into postcode into knowledge. Post-codes. Well, I've just given you the knowledge. Anyway, so I don't think it's over there. I think no. Bard Road is a gag. Because, well, and the other that's thing is, she says that at some point there's a, a breakout from the prison, prison and they come over the garden walls, yeah. the prisoners. The clincher for me, though, was when she says, I go round the corner to Acre Lane. Yeah, that was good you spotted that. So we're, we're standing outside number 24 Lambert Road. Lambert Road. L A M B E R T. Yep. Uh, it's opposite uh, the New Testament Church of God Church, in which there's a funeral on today, rather sadly. Uh, so we're, uh, we're making ourselves inconspicuous round the corner. Yep. To not to be disrespectful. But we've got a good view onto the house. And the, the house is a, it's a grand Victorian house. Mm-hmm. It's got one, two, three, four floors. Yes. Um, she says from the top floor you can see over to Westminster. Which would work if you were looking out the back. Yep. Because the houses behind are lower. Yes, you're on the hill. And it's a very tall, it's one of the tallest houses in Brixton, I would say. There's a row of about 15, 20 houses that have got, well, they've got a couple of things that are important. They've, uh, they're, they're tall, so you can see out the back all the way to Westminster Abbey. They've got a, a big bay window on the raised ground floor. Yes. And they've Check. also got a, something which is a rarity around here, a basement flat. Yes, for wheelchair. Very few of the houses have got basement flats around here. So it's perfect in it terms is. of the location. I think it is. And in terms of how the house looks. But it's even more perfect than that because of discovery you made. Yes. Again, going through the uh, archives around show business people living in the area. 24 Lambert Road, the Caron Troupe. It's a lovely picture of them here. Yep. The Caron Troupe were billed as the world's greatest lady gymnasts. Wow. That house was full of lady gymnasts. Full of lady gymnasts. A large house, <laughs> 11 principal rooms. The original Eleven? Caron Troupe arrived in London from Belgium. During the First World War. Oh, so they were refugees? Yeah, as a troupe of like eight... Like Poirot. You like Poirot. Poirot. <laughs> he would have enjoyed it in the the lady, lady gymnast. Can you go marriage out of the back? Uh-huh. They were known as the only female troupe of its kind and performed at music halls across Britain until the 1920s. Wow. Um, along the way, they recruited young British women and aspiring acrobats and gymnasts from Italy and India amazing isn't it that's really good in 1921 they performed at the Brixton Empress where we were talking about oh too good it's too good I think she must have known about them the Karen Troop were popular with audiences for their daring feats on high bars and rings with Victoria the strongest woman as the anchor supporting the others wow pretty good huh well I would say this is another curiously specific discovery then Tim I would say we're, giving, we're having that are we we're having 24 Lambert Road as 49 Bard Road yeah and then, and, then you just uh, walk uh, down I would not be at all surprised to, to find that Angela Carter knew all about the Carons we've also got rather mournful signs of what did for the theatre on the front of the house in that there's a lot of satellite dishes oh yeah yeah there are there's five just on so that that's, one building uh, that's, that's where your theatre audiences went yeah that's right damn it so that's the end of part one of our expedition across South London in search, in search of show business venues. That was really good. I really enjoyed that. Yes. Did you know, by the way, that, that I, I, only afterwards did I discover that the Brixton Ritzy was known as the local flea pit? Oh? Uh-huh. And she refers to that, doesn't she? She says, we go, I went to the local flea pit. Yeah. Because we were speculating that she said she might have meant what is now the electric. That's right. Or even uh-huh. the Scala at the road. But no, I'm now thinking it's the Ritzy. We were sitting in the right place, is what we I'm were, saying. We were sitting outside the room. We seat. were not wrong. No. We were, we were drawn to the right place. <laughs> sometimes wrong, sometimes right, always certain. Yes. Yep. Well, it's not, it's not like a Midhurst scenario, <laughs> is it? <laughs> Please don't remind me. <laughs> so, in the second half, we are going to go to Clapham. We're going to go to Clapham. Yes, because that's where Angela Carter actually lived. Yeah. We're going to have a look at her house. Yes. We're going to go to the pub. Hooray! Hooray! And we're going to follow up on a strange instinct you had to find a haberdashers on a haberdasher, haberdasher Street. yeah. Which you had some kind of relationship with. <laughs> you make that sound oddly oddly creepy. Well, I'm enticing the listener in yeah, to well, a story about a haberdasher. I find out about my relationship with the haberdashers in part two.